I think Islam hates us. They have done nothing except wreak havoc and terror for our faith and our religion. We, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad. Foundations of society are fragile. We must be the shepherds of our own civilization. If anyone answers either yes or no without making necessary distinctions, both are not telling the truth. They're lying. Father, we pray that your word will become a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. That you will raise up in this nation pulpits and prophets that will call the nation back to repentance. Will you distance yourself from those who think differently or will you join us at the table and talk about what is really important? This is the Maida Initiative. Conversation without compromise. So tell me about your story getting involved with history and archaeology, how that happened for you? Um, I've always been interested in history and archaeology. And I actually, when I went to the Middle East, was trying to avoid it a little bit. I was much more interested in the culture, the people, um, the things that were going on around. But the language school that I went to to learn Arabic, uh, the director of that school was, had been an archaeologist and he had a background in archaeology. He had done a number of digs. And then he saw the, the situation where people were living in. And then he moved away from archaeology and got involved with reaching out to people and helping all kinds of, of people uh, around, especially through the, the refugees that had been flowing into Jordan. So um, he knew my interest and my background and everything. So I was, I was young. I went over. I did unconventional things in that as soon after I finished my college degree, I took my wife, we went to the Middle East. And so um, I was in my 20s, early 20s, and he would sometimes just throw me his car keys. He says, uh, Dr. So-and-so is coming from this school, wants me to take him to Petra, can you drive him? And I was sort of his uh, excuse to take people all over the place so he didn't have to keep taking his friends all to the same place. And, so forth. So I, the early days, this is 1979, 1980, I sp actually made numerous trips. Every month I was making numerous trips to all the archaeological sites around Jordan, showing various scholars various things. It was a very interesting start um, uh, for me just to jump in from um, straight out of college and now being the tour guide and then listening and asking questions and discussing uh, stuff with people. So right from the beginning, I was involved in the lives of uh, lots of different, a wide variety of people. I remember one guy came, he was uh, expert in Baal worship. And uh, so when I took him to Petra, um, he was fascinated by the different uh, altars that were there and the different things. So I saw it through his eyes and I've taken all kinds of people. I remember taking a plumber once, believe it or not, from England, and he was fascinated with the plumbing. And he started pointing out, and I found out he knew quite a lot about old plumbing because of England goes way back. And he was saying, you see how they did that joint? We didn't figure out how to do that until the 1800s. And then we figured out how to make a joint, a clay pipe, be able to turn like that. He said, but look at how they did it. They did this back, you know, in 2000 years ago. So I have had a lot of different people that I've taken. A lot of different people have gone with me. And it's been a very rich experience right from the early but uh, on. But I needed to support myself. So I did lots of other things. 
along with um, start looking at history and exploring it. Really, I just wanted to get out and see where things were and discover things and get a feel for it. I had the dream of maybe someday I would write some fiction set in that area. So I just wanted to see everything and you know, experience everything. I was in my 20s and sort of in between things and um, just fell in love with the place and the culture and the language and the history that was there. A lot of it I didn't know and I had to start digging it out and spending time in the libraries. And in between that, I did all kinds of different things. I've worked uh, for, because I had some Arabic, I could be a liaison for NGOs with the government and with government officials. So uh, for instance, in Yemen, I spent most of my time at the Ministry of Health or visiting all the different government ministers and uh, making uh, you know, arrangements and contracts and drawing up things and, and, uh, and then traveling all over because I had a very nice uh, visa to be there and I had contact with all the leading uh, ministers uh, in the government. I could travel just about anywhere in the country and go all over the place. So um, we did a lot of exploring and climbing up and finding things and visiting all, all the different places, uh, even out of the way places. There's a lot of places in Yemen where we went into, they'd never even seen a white person before. I mean, kids would come up and touch your skin like, you know, how did you get so pale? <laughs> you know, things like that. So it was, we've had a, I've had a very broad experience across the Middle East. I don't know if that answered your question, but I've yeah. done everything. I've worked with a lot of NGOs, uh, just helping them out. And that allowed me to get into all kinds of corners of the Middle East that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten into. Yeah, that's that. I, I really want to get out there, actually, especially to I want to get to Saudi because they've just opened up their tourist visa. I've heard that. And so I've got a friend who's been working in Saudi and I'm trying to negotiate how uh, we can uh, go and do a tour through there. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, just, I want to get in there before it gets too touristy. Yeah, I don't know if it ever will. I don't know if Saudi will ever allow it to be too touristy. So, so feel, feel free not to answer this, but I, I watched a vid video, I'm sure you've seen it, about uh, claiming that the biblical site of Mount Sinai is uh, Jebel al-Los in, uh, mm -hmm. in northern Saudi Arabia. What, what do you think of that? Watch it again and ask yourself how much solid evidence are they giving me and how much are they asking questions uh, is this this or that? And I mean, because when I, I've watched it and I've read the books and I've watched a number of different videos, they they are very sensational. Oh, here's this cow, you know, and and you know, and so maybe this has something to do with this this drawing of a cow. Well, you can find cattle drawn on the side of mountains all the way up into Jordan and all the way. I mean, there's lots and lots of petroglyphs of things like that. And so to jump in and say, well, this is an indicator. I mean, I look at those kinds of things. Those don't indicate anything to me. So what does it come down to in the end? Oh, the Saudis wouldn't let anybody into here. They put a fence around it and, you know, aren't going to, well, there's a fence around every archaeological site in Saudi, in Jordan, and all these places. They do not want people going in and looting and so forth. And so once a site is discovered, they fence it up. And oftentimes they'll even have a guard or they'll have somebody who comes by on a regular basis. So those things are, they're not trying to hide anything. They're simply trying to protect 
these sites. So a lot of the hype in the film, I just had to dismiss, uh, you know, and just say, okay, that's, you know, it's just hype of the guys who are there trying to make it sound exciting and mysterious. But so how much actual evidence? And I remember after watching one of the films, then going and opening up and uh, reading some of the papers that had been presented um, by the uh, Egyptologists who believe in a different place, in a different location. And, uh, you know, I had just seen the film and said, okay, that sounds kind of convincing. Now I read the paper and said, wow, these guys sound very convincing. So it just depends who you read or saw last that leaves a lasting impression on you. I think the jury's still out, but um, unless they find a whole lot more at Jebelos, I'm not sure that, that that is the site. It could be, but I'd like to see some more evidence of some sort. And of course, there is very little evidence when you go back so far back into history. What survives is, uh, there's not a lot of things that survive, especially a nomadic people coming through. Even if there were 2 million nomads that came through, they're nomads. They, they don't leave behind very much evidence as with any nomadic encampment. Once the people move, whatever's left there just sort of disappears. And so there's not a lot of actual evidence. That's what that, I'm at. That's a good segue to, to kind of what I, what I want to ask you about next, because where, the position you're in, it's like there's three rivers kind of converging in this one place, these three streams of thought. You've got the Islamic mentality on archaeology, which I'm sure is not monolithic by itself. You've got the mainstream secular humanistic view on archaeology in another stream and then you've got christian sensationalism in another stream in another stream st still and you're like in a lone canoe with a few others trying to <laughs> paddle against those and we don't even have a stream <laughs> we're just yeah. in a canoe <laughs> um muslims have worked out and and one of the videos i did on my youtube channel is I talked about, I did some research on some ladies who were in Rome and they had become Christians and this is around 300 AD and they wanted to go find the Christian sites. I found it fascinating to read their accounts of how they left Rome and how they went down into the Middle East and how they went to different sites. So one of these very rich lady, very powerful, her husband in government, very powerful. And so whenever she found a place, she would um, give some money to have some sort of church or something built on the spot. But what's fascinating is that they were going around trying to decide where were these holy spots. Even to this day, if you go to see the tomb of Jesus, you'll find out there's actually several places where people have suggested. And, and so it's not like these locations are cast in stone. What has happened is they have gotten lost over time and then rediscovered. And how accurate were the people who rediscovered the location? I believe the very same thing took place in Islam. I think when it started, um, people went out. I mean, Islam spread, it moved. So very soon, nobody was left in Mecca because they had moved out. Uh, the armies were, have gone across North Africa. They've gone all the way over to Spain. Uh, and uh, they had gone 
uh, on the other side over to Afghanistan. So a lot of the men were off fighting. Others had moved over because Damascus became the new government. People had moved there. And, and so these original places were lost in history. In fact, Al-Tabari tells us even at one place, he said, Zamzam is lost. At this point in time, he says, nobody knows where the well of Zamzam is. I find that fascinating because uh, they weren't, they didn't have this view of trying to find these spots. Just like much the Christians in the first 300 years, it wasn't so important to go out and find, oh, here's the spot where, you know, Elijah lived. Well, I mean, they, they weren't doing that. They didn't have the means, and, and they, were, they were busy doing other things. There was persecution. There was, you know, things expanding. All this. So people didn't have a means to go do that. I believe the same thing happened in Islam. What changed in Islam was the Crusades. When the Crusaders came, one of the things, besides looking for money and looking for wealth and taking land, um, one of the things, uh, there were Crusaders coming along with them who were quite religious, and they wanted to know, where are these places? And so there was a renewed interest in the Crusades, and they were looking for anything and any exciting thing. So they were finding pieces of the cross, you know, and I don't know how many train loads worth of pieces of the cross, uh, you know, that somebody sold them or gave to them or was discovered. They, they've run around and found all these so-called holy places. And then you find paralleling that at the end of the Crusades, there is a growing interest for this kind of thing in Islam. And so the, the dates that we have go back to about 600 after the Hijra is when we find the first and the best known geographers, which people like um, uh, Yakut and others who are now going around trying to find these spots. So it's interesting reading Yakut. He's only in Arabic as far as I know. I don't think anybody's translated any of his writings into um, into English, but as an example in Aqaba, he's looking at where was Aqaba, and he actually has a whole discussion on Aqaba, word comes from the heel, but it also means the going up, because the heel is where you go up your leg, so this, that's where this word Aqab comes from, and then he talks about people mounting up on horses, could be Aqaba, or people, or a place or that goes up the mountain, and so he has gone to Mecca, and he's looking around until he finds a place that slopes up the mountain, and he says, this must have been Aqaba, and so this is where they had this big market, but you know, that going up the mountain doesn't it doesn't go anywhere but eventually a little mosque got built up there and it got this is Aqaba now you're talking 600 years after the fact that people are locating these ancient places so there are questions about where these places existed and so um, Muslims will come and say oh yeah this is known and so even today I was looking at one place and one of the emails I got the guy says this place is known we've known where it is all the time well I went back because there's several things you need to look at, not what Muslims are telling you today. Even scholars today are telling you this because this is what they know. What did the earliest manuscripts say? That's why I have uh, Ibn Hisham. That's why I have you know, Al-Tabri. And that's why I have you know, Bukhari and these others here. Because it's interesting. I went back to look as the modern one I was looking at. They say this was a pond where Muhammad met. Well, I went back to the earliest, Ibn Hisham, and Ibn Hisham says it was a well. Oh, 
this is very different, a well and a pond. You know, if I'm looking for a pond or a marshy place, or am I looking for a well? But what happens is in near Mecca today, this location is there, but it's a marshy wet place, but uh, it's not a well. And so, I mean, you have Muslim scholars coming. So there's more streams than you can imagine because you have all these ancient writings and if somebody takes the time to dig back through them and find out what exactly did they say? What were their descriptions in the early days? And then you find out what the moderns people are saying, modern being from you know 1200 AD up to now. And this is what Islam has traditionally said over the last thousand years, but it might be different from what the early uh, writers said. One of the problem was is that the early Muslim writings were not widely dispensed. So people didn't have Al-Tabri or Ibn Hisat and Ibn Hisham and so forth. They didn't have that just sitting on the shelf. I can turn around and find it. I can do one better. I have it on my computer and I can just search and uh, search for keywords and the document up they come and I can read the stuff I'm looking for, find it very quickly. But over time, uh, those early things, so you have the early documents, then you have Muslim tradition, then you have now today different um, modern archeologists who um, are coming along and they have a different view. The majority of these, not everybody, but the majority of these are atheists or agnostics or not believing that's in scriptures of any kind uh, as being scripture and so, you have to really read carefully what people are saying because they're coming along and saying, this is all made up, this is all myth. Now, why did they choose this to be history and this to be myth? I mean, it, you really have to, to dig through and I kind of ignore some of the, the modern guys because I'd rather go back to the earliest writings and find out what did they say rather than reading through people say, have you read this guy's book or this guy's book? And I'm like, these are modern books that have just come out. I'm like, no, I haven't. I'd rather read the original and, uh, you know, or go back and read an early, early manuscript of some sort. So uh, you have that. And now you have, uh, what's the word here? I don't think reform or reconstructionists are coming along. And there's a number in the last few years. And these our standard archaeologists have a problem with people like me who come along and reconstruct history. Um, I come along and suggest a couple of major changes. Not changing what was written, but changing in our understanding of what was written and where it took place. My biggest question is simply, where did these things take place? Show me evidence that they took place in Saudi Arabia, where everybody says, say Mecca was here all the time. Show me archeological evidence that Mecca was the city of Mecca um, going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Because the archeological history, I cannot see, doesn't go back that far. It only goes back about 900 years, uh, maybe a thousand years back. So, I mean, behind that, there, there is nothing. There's, there's very little there. So. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in. I can, it's a long story, but I began to realize very early on there are these different streams. And because I was interested in someday writing something, I wanted to read those original stories. I wanted to read what Al-Tabri said. I wanted to read Ibn uh, Hisham and so forth, because these are the earliest sources we have. I'd like to get it from them, 
not from somebody who's commenting on them and writing about that. I want to go back and read the original uh, stuff that's there. That's why even today I have some trouble with uh, with um, uh, Wikipedia. I thought just for a while, I'm going to go check this out in Wikipedia. What does Wikipedia say? Well, they gave lots of quotes of lots of different things. I looked out the references and they were all books written in the last hundred years. And so this is just somebody's opinion having, and even though he's an eminent scholar and everything else, this is his opinion. But I want to know what does the original say? Like when I was looking for this place and everybody's saying it's a pond. And then when I pull up uh, Ibn Hisham, he says it's a well. And it was dug and he tells us who dug the well. Oh, you know, so it's a slightly different story. So um, I'm the kind of guy who says, show me evidence. I want to go back and find the evidence. Take me to the place where this happened and show me that it fits what the earliest people say. I don't want to just go, here's the sign that you say, somebody says, this is the spot. Because I don't trust the spots. I don't trust the Crusaders that they found the right spots. I don't trust those ladies when they came over from Rome. Because sometimes they just had a dream at night and woke up in the morning and said, ah, this is the spot where this happened. And it's based on a dream, not even on any scientific you know, uh, explanations of what was there. So the traditional spots that we have may not actually be the places. So that's why um, early on when I started studying Islamic history and someone challenged me to read the Quran, uh, my Muslim friends, I read it, but I was thinking about geography. And I started recognizing very early on, there are problems with geography. So and, before we jump into this yeah, specifically, because I want to go there, I, I want to lay a bit more groundwork first okay. before, before the specific issue, because there's lots of people that ask questions about the world but to distinguish yourself from the israel finkelsteins the people of the world who are skeptical about anything in the bible or the quran right and those people exist so, so mm -hmm. st starting with the bible say lots of people and say somebody christians and muslims both believe existed will say king solomon either didn't exist or king david didn't exist or at least not in the capacity that the bible says they existed how would you approach those kinds of archaeological claims? There's another one. Or did King David exist in the way he has been portrayed in picture books? Because right. people have all kinds of pictures, but they haven't actually read the text. I'm the kind of guy who goes back. First of all, I'm a literalist. I think people wrote these things because in their day, they, that's what people said and believed. So, I mean, I can't tell you whether it's absolutely true or not, uh, the Quran even included or all these others, but when I mean, Al-Tabri was writing, he was a decent guy. He wasn't making things up, okay? He was trying to figure out history. Al-Bukhari was trying to figure out history. He had a limited understanding because of where he was in the situation he was in. So when I go back and read these Islamic people, I take them... Uh, as uh, literally, this is what they're saying. This is what they meant. If I go back and read the Bible, people were writing these things down at the time. This is what they literally meant. So, I mean, they were describing something that was believed at the time. If, if they were making things up, they would have been laughed 
at and the everybody would have known. You can't get away with making up all kinds of incredible things. What strikes me about the record of David, even of Moses and Abraham, is that for years people have come along and said some of these have been made up. I've heard this from many people. You know, oh yeah, that and you know, originally they said the Hittites were just invented. You know, the Horites, oh, they're just invented because there's no place like that. That that was going on in the 1800s, and they were people were pointing at the Bible and saying these these civilizations are just imaginary. And then one day in Turkey, some archaeologists stumbled over the the uh, the Hittites, and just, sure enough, they were a major force at the time. Just as the Bible keeps mentioning these Hittites, okay, and suddenly they're there. So some of the arguments I hear from people. They're echoing back from the early 1800s, before archaeology became a science, when people were saying, these are all just fictitious, made up. Well, we've had 100 years of good archaeological science. It has grown, it has developed, and you can't come along now and use the same arguments that were used in the first few years of the 1800s, because you can't say the Hittites didn't exist. And the Bible is just fiction. And, but you know what I hear? I hear the same, oh, the Bible's just fiction. It's just made up. I said, well, give me the examples. Because you don't dare give me the examples of, from the 1800s because they've all been proven that those places do exist. And so, you know, we talk about did David exist? Okay. Uh, they've gone back and they have found lots of things that are, are close to David, lots of things that are interesting with Solomon. But what is different about those is that we have a picture in our mind. And it's one that uh, I think the artists who did up the Sunday school lessons and wrote different things down and tried to present to us have given us a picture of something that the Bible doesn't give us a picture of. So when it says David was the king and he ruled all the way up to the Euphrates River in the north, Okay, and all the way down into the Negev. Um, and then we, we have this idea of, you know, he had, you know, this kingdom. Uh, the Middle Ages did us a very disfavor when the artists started portraying his palace with these giant columns and these huge buildings. And none of that's in my Bible. In fact, what I read in my Bible is that the people lived in tents. You can follow that all the way through Judges and into Samuel. You know, they keep repeating about tents. You all find it all the way through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Even after Solomon died, the, all of Israel met together to crown his son or not, and uh, there was a big uh, upset. And the people, ten, uh, the tribes, didn't accept his son. What did they say? Everybody, back to your tents. And if you go through, and I've got a video on this, but if you go through, you'll see that there's these continual references in the Bible to nomads. Remember, the children of Israel came, well, they lived in Egypt. They were nomads in Egypt. They looked after the cattle and the sheep. The Egyptians didn't like working with animals. So the Egyptians lived in the, in the, in the towns and places. The, the, the children of Jacob and the descendants there were... Um, living in a, in a place of, uh, where they were looking after cattle and doing ranching. They weren't building any big buildings. And then when they came out of Egypt, for 40 years, they lived in a tent, tents in the wilderness. Where did those tents come from? They took them out of Egypt with them. 
and you can go back and read some of that and you can go back and look at the archaeological bits that are there they lived in tents and their god lived in a tent in the middle of them and so the whole thing was uh was nomads being able to move now i've observed because we lived with the bedouin and i observed many bedouin encampments i would go out we would visit with people i would come back a year later or even six months later after they had moved on and look to see what was left behind. What kind of footprint does a nomad leave when he leaves? And I'll tell you, it's very, very little. Some rocks have been cleared away to make a smooth area, but there's very little footprint. And so what happens in uh, the history of Israel, people come along and say, well, at this point in time, it's like nobody lived here because there was, there's no building going on. That's because we're settled people looking for buildings. And actually, it was a time when nomads moved in, and the children of Israel slowly, but slowly is the word, um, you know, began to be uh, domesticized and to put up and urbanized and began to put up these. But when they talk about these cities, I've seen uh, the cities from the, you know, from the 10th century BC. And um, yeah, their, their houses are all built with their walls around to the back walls to each other. It's not like they had a city wall. It's just that all the buildings are built around, uh, like you know, and it's very crowded. So um, it's called a city, but it's really not a very big place. And that depends on your perspective. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm talking to somebody in Holland, and I tell them that I live, in, you know, in a in a I live in a town and uh, close to a city. And uh, what they have in their mind is different. Because the town I live in here is, it's the biggest town around. People come from all over the place to come to our town. Our town has 1,700 people in it. And you know, people from Holland, what? That doesn't even qualify as anything. But no, you come to Canada, up to Western Canada, and you know, a, a hamlet is becomes an organized hamlet of a certain size, and then it can become a village, and then it can become a town. And when you hit five thousand, you have the option of becoming a city. When you reach ten thousand people, you must become a city out here. That's a city. So when the Bible talks about a city, or talks about you know these places we might have in our mind something much larger than what it actually was. And so um, people who are reading about King David, I think King David existed. I believe we have records, and now we're starting to come up with different evidence that, that David was around. But remember, David didn't even have a capital city until he took one from the Jebusites. He had to look around and find a city. He didn't find a single city and all of the land that he had that uh, would work for a capital city. So he took his men and they went over and they captured this town uh, from the Jebusites and took over and that became uh, Jerusalem to this day. But it started out at David's time. He took it away from somebody else because they had settled, but his people hadn't even settled. So it just depends how you read these stories the view that you have. So I have this uh, when I come to Islamic history. Um, if you come in with something already in your mind, and that's what I find is we've been so affected by all of the history that people have told us this is the way it is, and you can, and then you come in and read it with something different in mind. Perhaps you will see those histories differently. So I remember I'll, being okay. I'll just go back. I remember being challenged. I'll just give you an illustration that. Um, uh, 
in the very, very early days that Islam started in the north of, of Arabia, not in the south. And so one day I was at a, a school in Europe and I was teaching and um, I had the afternoon off and I thought, I'm going to read something. I didn't bring anything with me to work on. Just had been busy till I got there, hadn't thought of it. So I went to the library and I got um, Sirat Rasulullah the, from uh, the, uh, the life story of Muhammad. And I thought, I'm going to read this just thinking about Northern Arabia because I already have you know, a lot of geographical background. As I read that book with a different perspective, thinking, could this have taken place there? Suddenly, I saw things I had never seen before. When the Quraysh came down to, to Mecca, or the Quraysh came to Mecca to attack, they attacked from the north. When the armies marched out to get to the Quraysh who were from Mecca, the armies always went north from Medina. Like these little things didn't make it, I just didn't see them before. But now I had a new perspective. Suddenly I'm seeing things that were written in there that had never registered before. So a big problem is when somebody tells you something, you accept it, then you read the text. You might see something that even opposes it, but it doesn't even register because you've already got a preconceived idea. And that's a problem we have in the Bible. When people read it, that's a problem we have uh, when people are reading uh, the Quran and so forth. We come with preconceived ideas and then we develop uh, and these, and then people come along and say, it can't be true, David couldn't have existed because there's no big empire. But if you read the Bible, there was no big empire of cities. There was an empire of nomads and archeology span does support that. It doesn't support the big cities. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So then people who would go in with certain assumptions would, would miss that. There's also a growing number of secular scholars and some, some Christians as well who are going to be making the claim that there's no evidence that Muhammad actually existed, that he simply made up as a political tool later to cement political power into the caliphate. How would you answer people who think that way? Um, there's so many different approaches you could take. Um, I wouldn't expect there to be any evidence for Muhammad. Um, because if you read Muhammad's story, uh, he was fighting for uh, a place to be, like to, to, to control and to have or whatever. He never set up a proper uh, administration wherever he was. So they never did mint any money. So, so I mean, that wasn't part of it. They used the the uh, money that was available at the time and they weighed out silver and gold and things. So uh, some of the things that we think should be there is because we are comparing this group of people around Muhammad with maybe the Romans at the time. Well, the Romans weren't nomads. And you, you know, the Romans were very developed civilization. And so you can find evidence of many things if you're looking at the Roman Empire. You come over here to this group of basically, again, very nomadic people, these tribes who are nomads. Muhammad is bringing them together. They're going out, they're actually raiding and bringing back some of the, the loot that they've taken. And then he's going on and he's preaching in different places. What are you expecting to find from an archaeological viewpoint? What could there be 
that uh, would be evidence left behind. Uh, and that's where people like saying, oh, there was no evidence. Of, and I'm like, well, what do you expect there to be? Who do you expect? Did you expect there to be a giant temple? You know, because they didn't build giant temples. Even the original mosques were very small and often, you know, just made with palm branches and different things. So, um, and it was a nomadic religion. You could just mark out a spot on the ground, move a few rocks away, and you could pray. You didn't have to build uh, some big building. And so there were no big buildings. None of that. That happened in Damascus once people moved there and they started you know, building up the empire, and that's where you get the coinage, and that's where you get all the things that people are looking for. But there wasn't any of that during the lifetime of Muhammad, nor was there, and can I find any of that for Jesus? Because Jesus was, uh, again, an itinerant preacher. He moved around. He didn't, there was no big temples built during his lifetime. There was no coinage. He didn't have the ability to make the coins, and that wasn't part of the plan to make it. So, so what are people looking for when they're looking for proof that somebody uh, lived, like archaeological proof? Um, much more difficult uh, to find that. So again, be realistic when people come along. I have no problem that maybe somebody existed or didn't exist, but I'm not expecting there to be some very clear archaeological proof. On the other hand, when there is a description of something, I would like to be able to go there and find that. So when I'm reading my Bible and it says a man went down from, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I go to the spot, and guess what? There's a road, and it goes from Jerusalem up high down to Jericho. Ah, whoever wrote this knew what he was writing about because that detail fits. And so when I'm reading Islamic history and I'm reading about you know, uh, the place where Muhammad's house was, it was in a canyon, and there was only one way out of the canyon, and it was so narrow you could barely get a camel through. Okay, and this is the, the place where he and his wife had their... So I'm like, okay, that's the description. I go to Mecca, and here they say, here's Muhammad's house. I'm like, where's the, the canyon that nobody could get out of? How could the people of the Quraysh, you know, uh, put two guards on this canyon and keep them in there for three years where they almost starved to death? This is the story in Islam, and you go there, and it's like... It doesn't fit. And so this, the problem we have with Muhammad especially is that the descriptions don't fit the early accounts. And so one of the opinions is to say that the early accounts um, uh, give us this, but they must have made up a fictitious character. The approach I've taken is saying, I think the early accounts are right, I think our understanding of them is wrong. And when it describes the canyon where Muhammad and Khadija lived, you're going and looking at Muhammad's house, I'm saying, that's not Muhammad's house. Okay, you're going to have to look in another place to find Muhammad's house. And I think I know where it is. I think I can take you to it. But it's not where they say it is. And so something in the history changed. And so the details were all lost. Uh, but if you're going back to the Bible and you want to go to Capernaum and you can say, okay, here's the, here, you know, Jesus was speaking in a synagogue. So I can go to Capernaum. I can find the ancient synagogue. It's there. And I can see the houses down there. And I can see the Sea of Galilee over there. And it's like, oh, this place fits. This looks right. 
But then you come to the Muhammad's records and uh, there was a whole bunch of records, Bukhari had them, of Muhammad preaching in a Roman bathhouse. And poor Bukhari, he has to decide, are these stories I'm hearing true or not? Are they trustworthy or are they not trustworthy? He takes all of the sermons from that Muhammad preached in the bathhouse and he throws them out. And we've lost them. All we know is that he rejected every sermon Muhammad preached in a Roman bathhouse. Now, if, you, if I take you to where I think that this story took place, I discovered when I was there looking at it just beside where this story took place, guess what? There is a Roman bathhouse in the location. So I think the problem with Muhammad is geography. We're not looking in the right place, so we can't find Muhammad. So I'm, again, I'm a literalist, and I realize it's my voice against all these other very clever, very well-trained, very qualified people. I'm the one guy who's come along and said, I think the geography is wrong. And uh, I think I can show you with some proof that the geography should all be taking place in another place. Now, there's a problem with that, and the problem is that people, these historians realize, if you make a major change in history, you have to re-examine all of the history. And it's got to fit. If it doesn't fit right, then, and nobody wants to do that. And so since I first made my discovery about geography, the last nine years, I have been as fast as I can, going through all of the various little geographical references, reading them and trying to see, does it fit? And usually I can turn around within a few minutes of reading, going, oh, I know where that place is. I've been there. And I could, you know, and take you there and describe it. it it's, it's just a matter of having visited all these places and then being able to read a description and saying, ah, that place, it took place here. Once I got the clue of where to look, and that was the the thing we did nine years ago. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's a there's certain anachronism that people use to look for King David, and when they and when they don't find that anachronism, they come to the conclusion that David didn't exist. And it sounds like that's the same sort of thing that's happening to Muhammad. They're looking for him yeah. in a certain way that they expect, in a certain place they expect, and they're not finding him because of that. And then they're basically giving up and saying, no, we think this is all made up based on some faulty presuppositions. Yeah. But there's their presuppositions, some of them that have been around for a thousand years. Yeah. With lots of presuppositions, even today, modern society is full of presuppositions. Um, Americans have their presuppositions as well. And sometimes based on very faulty things. It's very interesting to study American history as a non-American and then talk to people later. And they're aware of one thing or another, but sometimes their view of history has become warped over time or is just not what you know, it should be. But you know, it's what gets in our history books and the views that are given and the way we see things. So worldview and perspective are huge in this. And a big part of it is just you've got to get rid of your worldview and your perspective and everything else and just try to read and study these things from uh, without prejudice and without seeing it either as a Muslim or as a Christian or as an agnostic or whatever. It's just trying to look at what is this history telling me? That is a big challenge. So 
you through through kind of following this rabbit trail you ended up making a film about this yeah so how how what was the evidence that led you to think okay this is such an important discovery i have to make a film about it and if you want to state what the basic premise of the film is as well because it's, it's big it's a big story and it's a big film and the whole thing is very big but i mean I had been throwing this thing around about something's wrong with the geography of Islam. And I have often described it as, you know, uh, you can look at Islam in two different ways. One, you can do it from studying Arabian history coming up to Islam. And other ones, you can take Islamic history and working back and they don't meet very well. They're, they're, they're just like, there was a gap. I was always aware there's some sort of gap and I really didn't want to tackle it. I worked on both ends down to the middle and, well, finally, one guy just begged me with tears. Even he said, "You've got to figure. You're the only guy I know who's, you know, who's in the place to figure this out, and you've you've got all the basic research done." And so I remember I thought, "Okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical, and I'm just going to do this. I'm going to work 10, 12 hours a day for a year, and just fight my. That's the kind of mentality I have. Just grab a hold of it like a dog, a bulldog with his teeth, and just work at this for a while." And so I thought one of the first things is. You know, they, um, the, there were mosques that faced Jerusalem. And I had visited a number of them where the proprietor had said, oh, this mosque faces Jerusalem. I said, oh, okay. You know, and I had written all these notes down. And I had started thinking, let me just find all these mosques that face Jerusalem. And that's a good starting point for Mecca and facing Jerusalem. So I started hunting and I had problem being able to prove that any of them faced towards uh, Jerusalem. So I started getting the GPS out and started to, to work with angles. And it was just at a time when this technology was coming along. And I made the shocking discovery that I could not find a single mosque that faced Jerusalem. Now, there were quite a few mosques that had been built and rebuilt and remodeled and rebuilt and torn all down and rebuilt again. And so I couldn't use those, even though some of them are famous mosques, because there was no early foundation. There were other mosques that were out in the desert. The town maybe, you know, dwindled, and everybody moved away, and there stood the foundation of that mosque, and I could go out and do an accurate measurement of that. And my big surprise was that in the first 100 years of Islam, not only did I not find a mosque pointing to Jerusalem, I didn't find a mosque pointing to Mecca. That, that just threw me. I mean, I, I had done that within about, oh, I would say about eight weeks of starting the study. And I had started out by just looking at the Qiblas of early mosques. And I was suddenly re realized something is wrong. Um, these mosques are all facing Northern Arabia. So I decided I needed to do more research. Although I wrote the first book at the end of the year called Quranic Geography. It's not the best book. It's, it was a stab at it. But at that point, I said, I need to publish something so I can hear back because this is too big for just me to work on. And so uh, by publishing that and having other people read it, started getting lots of feedback, lots of letters and lots of good ideas. And so uh, this thing began to go. Six years later, I put out the book Early Islamic Qiblas because um, of all, I started listing every mosque I could find in the first 200 years of Islam. 
everyone and then a listing can i find the foundation or not so at least every mosque is listed everyone if, if, if i've classified them as uh as are they known or unknown so there's some are unknown because you and you go back what dates it's rebuilt can't can't tell where this mosque faced others then i could begin to classify so um it wasn't uh, in, until the second book that i came out realizing that there were some mosques which I classified as between. We didn't even have that classification in the first book because hadn't even recognized that there were over 20 mosques with this very unique Qibla. And they were only developed over a 60 year period of time. So, I mean, it, it meant that I needed data to work with. And you can't just go on the internet and say, well, now you can, but back then you couldn't because you couldn't find, I mean, I would look for every mosque, but then I started writing people and talking to people and looking and, you know, we're still finding some new mosques. People are still writing. Have you seen this one or that one? I've got an email sitting here now of uh, four, uh, apparently four new mosques in Spain that I hadn't looked at. It's like, Oh, this is interesting. So, um, because one guy said, I'm in contact with these historians in Spain and they're talking about these mosques. Well, that's all written in Spanish and I don't read Spanish and I just have never gotten around to looking at those papers and, and that discussion. So it's a very huge topic because I'm tackling 200 years of Islamic history and I'm making a couple of major changes, but they're geographical changes. I'm not changing you know, the order that things happen. I'm not changing what people said. I'm not, you know, saying, oh, this is not true and this is true. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just trying to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together, but looking at what the mosques tell me and the direction that they're faced. It's called the Qibla. That's the direction of prayer that you pray in the mosque when you stand and pray. And where was that? And I discovered the first hundred years of Islam, they were all facing northern Saudi Arabia, southern Jordan, and when I drew the lines on the map, they all converge on the ancient city of Petra. That made a lot of sense to me. Other people who never visited Petra don't know. I've been there over 60 times. I've been there, you know, for, you know, with multiple groups and with individuals and young guys. We've climbed through the canyons around Petra and got lost out there. And, uh, and we have lots of stories of stuff we've tried to do with. But I mean, that was before I even knew anything about the study. And now when I realized, oh, it's Petra. Suddenly all the stories started making sense. The things I had read, I couldn't figure out. I could place them in Petra, but I could not place them in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So the last nine years now, I have been trying to work out the details, the devils in the details. And as many people said, you, you're changing everything. And it's like, I have to go back and examine everything and make sure everything fits. Okay, does that help? Yeah, that, that helps immensely. So, so what, when you look at the, this evidence, you don't find mosques pointing in disparate directions. Because I like the word facing because the mosque doesn't actually point, but it faces. Okay. <laughs> but you don't, you're not finding them facing disparate directions, showing some imprecision in geography. You're seeing them all converge on one specific area. I'm seeing it in different time periods. That's why time period, as well as what, where they're facing, are, you have to put together. So for a certain period of time, you have mosques all facing in one direction. Then you have, as well as that, a new facing direction introduced for 60 years, and then it stops. 
and then you have growing numbers facing Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And over in, um, in North Africa, you have a whole new thing going on over there, how mosques uh, and where they're facing, but they're all, they're all facing together. So it comes up with, you know, I have over 20 mosques facing Petra. I have over 20 mosques doing something totally different in Africa. There's over 20 mosques that are this between thing that's going on here. And then there's 20 plus, and nowadays many, many more ever since then, that are uh, facing Mecca and Saudi Arabia. So it's important to get timelines and to see where it happens and, and how many there were and to group them and to see how accurate. So it's it's not that uh, you d we're just looking at one or two. Now, when I'm talking about 20 mosques, these are 20 mosques I can measure. There's a whole bunch more that are, are unknown because I can't measure them. But these are 20, 25 mosques in these different categories that I can actually take you there. We can look down uh, from satellite images or we can go there and look at the actual building and take a GPS and line it up and see where does this mosque face. So if, if what you're saying is true and the Mecca in Saudi Arabia today is not the Mecca of history. How the heck does something like that get changed? I mean, that's an enormous conspiracy in, in terms of scale. It is and it isn't. If you try to, um, again, clear your mind out of all the stuff you have in it and imagine that the first, uh, Kaaba building is in Petra and you've been told all your life that this was built by Abraham who you know had his sheep in those mountains Ishmael is buried there there's a place where the wall curves around and that's the grave where Ishmael was and uh, that's that's the place where Abraham took um, Hagar uh, when he sent her away and she he took her there and uh, she was there in this valley and uh, that's where later Abraham returned back. He had built altars of sacrifice in other places. He came back and built an altar with Ishmael. This is the Islamic story. And they built this altar. The first uh, one that he built was called uh, Bethel, Beit El, the house of God. And this one is also called the house of God. And so um, Muslims will tell you, this is the house of God that was built by Abraham. They think that took place in Mecca and Saudi Arabia. When you look at the mosques and look at all the direction, everything says that took place in Petra, and that makes perfect sense. The location where it is and what happened and all the things in the Quran that talks about Lot and, you know, and, and, the, and his wife being killed and so forth, all, all those things are understandable because they all took place you know, within 100 miles of, of Petra. So the, there are these, these events that, that uh, took place there. So uh, Petra made sense. Now, if you've got that in your mind, and then there's a, a, the Muslims are, are growing up in power, and then there's this big change when one of the caliphs says, let's go and move our whole thing off to Damascus. Damascus is a secular city. It's far away. There was a lot of people upset with the move to Damascus. And it was so much so that the ruler of the holy city, which was in Petra, rebelled against Damascus, started the Second Civil War. And so people took sides. Now remember the armies, the main armies were all off on the frontiers, Afghanistan and over in North Africa. So there is soldiers and people in Damascus, they come down and they begin the civil war fighting between the holy city and the leaders. So this is already a time of turmoil. 
people already being killed and so forth. And, the, and we have the record that Tal Tabri tells us and other people tell it how, how Ibn Zubair in, in the middle of this war, he's the leader, he takes the, the black rock out of the Kaaba building, he puts it in a stand during the, the war, the Kaaba building is smashed to the ground. And uh, then we have another chapter where that rock is picked up and it is moved. Uh, all we know is a bunch of people move. We can uh, guess by looking at history. This is the one place now where we've got to make a guess. When did that black rock move from Petra and everything else that took place there into Mecca in Saudi Arabia? But uh, within a short time later, only a few years later, we have the Kaaba building appearing in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The black rock is there. There's even an inscription on the wall saying there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of God. That is written on the wall. It's dated as, uh, I think it's 87 or 89 uh, after the Hijra. You can check on my videos or in the books. And uh, it's, it's written there. And this is the year that Masjid al-Haram was built in Mecca. That is a fascinating statement because that is the year that the, the, the Kaaba bill and everything was built in Saudi Arabia. It's written on the stone by somebody up in the mountains looking after his sheep, wrote this out because it was a big exciting thing for him that this happened. So we've got that inscription. It's written in stone. We know when Mecca started and that is there. And it started over 80 years after Muhammad died. Muhammad was born, raised, and died. Everything took place in Petra. The Hijra was down to Medina and then north back up uh, to the Petra region. Everything fits. When you start reading, and I've, got, I've gone on the internet now with these YouTube videos. Some are, uh, are the scholars say, why are you making YouTube videos? And I said, because I need help. I need help from Muslims all over the world who read their Qurans, who read their histories, to come and look at what I'm doing and tell me what's wrong and what's right with it. And you know what? 98, 99% of the emails I receive, people are saying, I believe you. It fits. And here's what I found. And, here's, and they say, well, I have this one question. Now, what about this thing? Or what about that thing? And then we're able to look at that and deal with that. And so these are some of the videos which are still coming out. But I'm getting an overwhelming positive response. Now, that's not to say if you go onto the YouTube video, you will see comments and some people will say, you're crazy, you know. You and so that's everybody's initial response. I expect that from everybody. So, um, but those people are not emailing me later asking questions. They're making an immediate reaction on YouTube. And so you get quite a mixture there. But with the people who actually email me, they're saying, I've looked at this. And I found lots of people were saying, I've looked at this and it fits. It suddenly makes sense. And well, if you, so, don't have, if you don't have negative YouTube comments, do you even have a YouTube channel? Yeah, right. I mean, I've got a YouTube channel and I get, I get some negative comments there, but not overwhelmingly so. I mean, it's not like it's just negative, 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 negative. I, I, mostly it's people are just like, you're crazy. You should read the Quran. You should talk to my mullah and, and you know, and that's it. And so, yeah, okay, he's just reacting because this is the first time this person's heard it and he hasn't looked at anything. And that's the reaction I had. When I first discovered this back in 2000, I mean, 19, ah, 2010, um, I, I couldn't believe it. I went around for about a year, year and a half, trying to disprove what I had found. Because there's no way I wanted to 
make a big deal about this if it could be easily disproved. And so I've argued every way I can against this uh, for myself and tried to, I want to hear everybody else's arguments and I want to see, can this be answered? Can I answer the arguments by the evidence that we have? I think all the arguments can be answered. I think all the details can be put into place if, or if we can't give a clear answer, we can at least say there's nothing opposed to what we see here. So maybe we can't actually find a location because it's just mentioned once or twice. And so I can't go and say, well, here's that location, but most of them we can find. And it, it completely puts Islamic history on its ear. It just turns everything upside down. Uh, but when we go looking for the tribes that are, People say, oh, all the tribes are here. I say, well, where do you get that tribal list from? That was made up in the last 200 years. You know, give me evidence that those tribes lived there long ago. If we move the whole thing over to Petra, then what do we do with the tribes and the names they will be here? And that's another whole interesting story, finding the tribes, not just the archaeological data. But it's been fun. Uh, not everybody agrees with me, and I don't expect them to. But so far, I haven't been able to disprove this theory to myself. Uh, and a lot of people have come along with really good questions, really good comments, and have been very, very encouraging as I've done this. So I'm very happy at that people are looking and answering questions. For me, it's really, really important that everybody, Christians, Muslims, anybody who believes something by faith, that you look to find um, supporting evidence for what you believe. And so, I mean, if I'm going to follow the Bible, if I want to be a Christian and follow the Bible, what are the supporting evidences that I can find that will help me in my faith? But in the end, these are religions, and the religion is a way of faith, something you believe in. So that you, I can't prove to you the Christian message. I can't prove to you or disprove to you a Muslim message. That is something each individual has to make when he looks at the information that's available to him. So when Jesus says you don't need to worry about uh, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink because the Heavenly Father knows and he's going to look after your needs, well, you need to prove that for yourself and, and see how God provides for your needs, if, that, if you believe that's what God has for you. And so um, I think that in the end, these religions come down to the experience if you are a follower of Jesus, he says you will have a personal relationship with him. The question is, do you have a personal relationship? Have you found the things that the book claims, that Jesus claimed? Are those things true in your life or are they not? And so um, someplace archaeology ends and faith begins. And I'm not here uh, as a historian to say I can prove uh, Christianity, or I can prove Islam to you. I can only look at the archaeology. And when I've come to the Christian archaeology and come to the Christian history, we are finding, and archaeologists are finding more and more evidence that supports the Bible. These things are not on front uh, big headlines. The news doesn't make them a big deal. So when they find, uh, you know, a signet of Isaiah. In, in Jerusalem, in, in a dig somewhere, you know, and here's the one that he used to put the seal on it. I mean, that doesn't make big front headlines. 
But for many Christians, that's very important because that confirms Isaiah was a real person. And what do we do? We go to where he was, where we expect him, and we find exactly it fits. The archaeology fits. What we're having to do with Islam is we go there and it doesn't fit. And we have to start looking and searching all over because it doesn't fit what people have traditionally understood all down through history. So some question, did it ever happen? Is it ever really true? And uh, one of the answers I've come up with is, I think we've got the geography in the wrong place. So two quick things to wrap up. Uh, first, the, the listener who's either intrigued or thinks you're completely insane, but is willing to hear you out. Um, where can they find your work? It depends how you want to look. Um, I would suggest you go to the website, the sacred city that, and hopefully you can put that on the screen the yeah, sacred I, I will. city.ca because I'm a Canadian. So that's the name of the film. If you go to that YouTube, I mean, if you go to that website, you will find links to where you can find that film. It's in 12 or 13 different languages. Uh, and there's also links to some of the papers I've written. There's, it'll tell you how you can find the books that are on this topic. And there's links to the YouTube channel. And I keep posting. So there's more videos on the YouTube channel than there are on that website. But once you get into the YouTube channel, you begin to see where all those are. I'm hoping to, uh, I am working towards redoing a website that we had up before. I want to redo that. It's got about five or 600 actual pages of stuff in it. So it's a massive website. And uh, that's where you can go and actually uh, this, uh, we'll be able to look at the Kibla tool. You can see that on the Sacred City, the Kibla tool, but in, in more detail, we'll be setting it up on this new website. And you can go and you can actually see pictures of the mosques and how we measured them and what the measurements are. And you can analyze the data yourself. We're trying not to hide it. We're trying to make the data available, accessible to everybody everywhere. And, and then, so I'll post links to all of that in the video description for people to find. Uh, then has there been any concise opposition saying, no, Mecca has always been in what's modern day Saudi Arabia and here's the evidence for that. And where would they be able to find those people if they exist? Um, on my website, I, there's one scholar who has stood up and, uh, so his name is Dr. King. Um, and so you can find my replies to Dr. King. And, and whenever I do that, I put up what he says in writing. So you could go through and look at that. And then you can go find some of his papers. Dr. King comes up with a different solution than I've come up with. And so he doesn't come up with the traditional Islamic answer. He's not defending the traditional answer that Muslims have. Although he might say, well, I have got the traditional understanding, but uh, he is uh, projecting something else um, of, of that. And so many Muslims, once they hear and understand what Dr. King is saying, are going, oh, I don't agree with that either. So um, what happens here is you get people who may disagree, but then they give their idea. I get lots of emails from people saying, oh, 
what about this? This is my idea. They haven't really thought it through very well. And they expect me to think it through for them, I guess. And I have to go back and go, well, that's your idea. When you work it all out, you know, in a couple of years, you write, get right back to me and tell me about it because I can't work through all their ideas. So there are some YouTube videos in Arabic. There are some in Urdu uh, and different languages. I saw one in Turkish. And so um, different people answering. So it's a bit hard for me to, to uh, listen to all of them, but uh, Adnan Ibrahim has done quite a bit in Arabic, and uh, he, um, but I don't think he comes back, it's not like there's a dialogue going on, he rants and raves about various different things, and then I have to go back and sort it out, and, uh, you know, so some of his arguments are like, oh, Dan Gibson doesn't speak good Arabic, so he can't do this, and Dan Gibson is not a Muslim, so he doesn't understand anything, and so forth. So, I mean, you have to get those arguments away. But once in a while, he, he actually comes up with some good ideas. And I listen to him. Oh, I need to be able to answer that. And so then I can go back. And so I'm continually looking for what people are saying and trying to respond back and trying to see, can I answer that question? Does that, does something fit? So um, I, there's no one place you can go and look. Uh, I have been attacked. Um, my... Uh, uh, my academic background where I've been attacked at, my character background has been attacked. Uh, I mean, lots of different things. My abilities in various areas have been attacked and questioned and so forth. But in the end, it's like, it, it doesn't matter what qualifications I have or don't have and so forth. What matters is the actual data. Here's the data. Can you address it and answer? And can you say, why do these mosques face the directions they're facing? And so far, nobody has accurately dealt with the data outside of Dr. King, who has put his own spin on it and who I've tried to answer. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you guys for listening to the Almeida Initiative podcast. We will be back next week with another episode.